the biggest lesson for me was really the concept of having a financial goal. You know, to me, I never knew what I was earning money for other than covering my month by month expenses. I didn't know what I should be doing with it. I didn't have a financial goal, so I didn't really know how to set about accomplishing it. What I realized is this, this concept of financial independence, this idea of building up passive income sources, and that when my passive income sources exceed my cost of living, I'm financially independent. I, from that point on, would have no financial stress or much less financial stress because I know each month that money is coming in whether I'm capable of working for it that month or I'm not. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 127. Jace, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Doing pretty good, man. How are you doing? Good. We just recorded an interview tonight. That was fun. You know, I, I'm reminded of, well, first, let me start with this. Let me back up. You sent an article about a guy who had, who had, did he retire early or he was kind of in the fire movement, right? And it made me think of some of these people that have retired early with their, with a million bucks or a million five and just kind of have stock market investments. And one of the questions, whenever we interview somebody that's retired early with just a stock portfolio is, is the question we've always asked is, well, what happens if, if there's another 2008, right? And so here we are, give or take, right? We're at 35 or 40% down or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and so it'd be interesting to either have him back on the show or, or kind of see where they're at now. In his article, he suggested focus less on the retire early part and more on the financial independence piece, right? Yeah, totally. I think it's an interesting topic. We, we've had all these millionaires on, you know, for for the greater run of the bull market or the, the end of the bull market, rather. And and now we're entering into what appears to be a recession, or definitely some some more difficult economic times than than we might have had in the past decade or so. You know, when we started the show, something that we really wanted to dive into is, hey, do these millionaires adjust their portfolios? Do they change their outlook? Hindsight's always twenty twenty for a lot of us. What kind of things and strategies are going to take place during this time? You know, and I, I really believe that there's going to be a lot of opportunities just like there were in 2008. I think we're going to have a lot of, you know, American people, people in general are resilient. We're creative. This country was built on, on small business and entrepreneurship to some degree. And I think we'll see, you know, some great things come out of it. There's definitely going to be some hard times, uh, you know, across the board and those that have, you know, prepared in terms of, you know, holding some cash, I think there'll be a lot of opportunities for them, whether it's real estate or whether it's equity markets or, you know, a new business venture or, you know, sometimes these things take a while to unfold. And I think, you know, we're just barely tipping the iceberg right now, what might take place down the road here. Yeah. It's, it, we interview, we had an interview a few nights ago, um, with a gentleman and one of the quotes he brought up, I just want to read because I don't know when we'll end up releasing that episode. And I think it really applies now. He talked about a war, a quote Warren Buffett said, and I, I believe the 2017 shareholder letter for Berkshire Hathaway. And he was talking about, you know, what to, what, what their plans were, what they were going to do for the future. He said, I have no magic plan except for to dream big and be prepared mentally and financially to act fast when opportunities present themselves. Every decade or so, dark clouds will fill the economic skies and they will briefly rain gold. When downpours of that sort occur, it's imperative that we rush outdoors carrying wash tubs and not teaspoons. That 
we will do. And then he says, no one can tell you when these traumas occur. Not me, not Charlie, not economists, not the media. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You wonder if now, right, especially with the stock market, everything's on sale, right? You've heard that kind of heard that phrase the last couple of weeks, few weeks, I guess, month or so. I mean, the question obviously is how, far, how much farther down will it go? But I think a lot of people agree that when it starts going up, it's going to go back up quickly, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, you see people out there like Mark Cuban, I think mentioned that he's buying like 1% every day goes down or something. I don't know if that's 1% of his net worth or, or of what he has just invested in, in equities, but you never know what it's going to be the bottom, right? Nobody has this crystal ball and, and maybe his approach is the best. You just kind of keep buying. You know, I have some people in my network that are predicting that it's going to go down, you know, another 10,000 points potentially to 08 levels. And who knows if it will? I mean, nobody knows, but I have some people in my network that are predicting that, which would be catastrophic almost. I don't know that the country would allow that. I mean, who knows? Possible, I suppose. Uh, but you know, definitely some, some buying opportunities for sure. Yeah. So pretty interesting stuff. So just, just to recap, last week we had Barbara. It's a really interesting episode. She's a radiologist, also a mom of a toddler. Her current net worth is just over a uh, million dollars. She has about $700,000 in cash, 500000 in investments. Uh, we talked about kind of her, her mistakes and advice and, and really a great interview with her uh, being a physician in a male-dominated field. So that's that's last week's episode with Barbara. Today's episode, we have Dave. Dave currently lives in Israel. He's a corporate lawyer before starting a couple of businesses. He's written a couple of books and, and moving across the world. We talked to him about living in Israel, what's that like, what his expenses are, and also his new book titled Cash Machine. And he also gets into financial independence and, and passive income. So he's graciously, graciously offered to donate a copy of his new book. So if you're interested in that, listen to this episode and send us an email and we'll be drawing that in the next couple of weeks after we get some entries for his his giveaway. So let us know there if you're interested, but a really great interview. If you'd like to be on the show to share your millionaire financial story, or if you're close to, to being a millionaire, we also like to highlight some of those stories just so we can connect with people who are kind of on their journey. So if you're interested in being on the show, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, we appreciate you listening. I know it's kind of a, an interesting time. People may not be uh, listening to podcasts generally as much, right? Because they're not commuting as much. But if you if you listen to the show and you appreciate it and you learn something or connect with somebody, get somebody out of it, we'd really appreciate if you leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us get the show out and grow it and also to reach new millionaire interviewees. But without any further delay, let's get right into today's show with Dave. Dave, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Absolutely. So- I'm a personal growth junkie. I'm always looking to figure out how I can grow in different ways. And unlike most authors who like to write what they know, personally, I love to write about subjects where I really feel like I need to learn. And that's where I was two years ago. I was really struggling financially, despite making a pretty solid income, because I realized I just didn't understand money enough. And that began a two-year journey to learn everything I could about money. And together with my wife, Hannah, we wrote it into this love story, actually, that gives readers really attempting to give them a solid financial foundation, financial education. So we just came out a couple months ago with a book called The Cash Machine, A Tale of Passion, Persistence, and Financial Independence. And it teaches literally hundreds of financial lessons, all told through a novel that we hope the readers will just lose themselves in. Dang, that's crazy. So I, we want to get a little bit more into this book, but I want to give some context to our listeners a little bit about you. So before the show, you kind of mentioned to us that you're a U.S. citizen you kind of had this life in, in the United States first, and then you moved overseas. You want to kind of just get a little bit into that story and kind of what you, how that all kind of came about? Absolutely. So 
Yeah, back in the States, I, I was an attorney. I was actually a litigator for the Natural Resources Defense Council. I was doing clean air, clean water, and ecosystems preservation work. And I really loved it. I felt like I was making a big contribution. But I also looked at the attorneys I was working with, and I realized that I didn't want my life to look like theirs. That I saw like work was the main thing they were focused on. And at the time, I was becoming more observant. I'm, a, I'm Jewish, and I felt a lot of connection to, to Israel. And I was keeping Shabbat at the time. So it would be Friday afternoon and we'd be in the middle of a case and everyone's working hard. And I'd have to say, see you later, because when the sun goes down, I have to stop working for 24 hours. And I felt like very much like a fish out of water. And when I came to Israel soon thereafter, after I finished this two-year fellowship I had there, I got to Israel and I just felt so at home. And I said, you know what? This is where I want to live my life. I'm ready to start building a family and I don't want to be working 60-hour weeks. I want to find a way that I can live over here and support them. And so I started a business, got out of law entirely, and I started an e-commerce business. And at the same time, like I really built it to be a largely passive income source. So right now I work probably about a half hour a day, and it leaves me a lot of time to be both studying. I, I became an Orthodox rabbi, actually, over over time, and also to be writing books. I got really into writing. I love stories. I think people learn best through stories. And so if there's anything I want to learn in my life, I'll go and I'll write a novel on the subject because there's no better way to learn about something than to, to write a novel on it. Wow, that's pretty crazy. So you're an attorney, lawyer here in the United States, and then you pick up and leave and go to Israel, completely change location, everything else. Is your family still here in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. And then did you get married over there in Israel or in the United States? I got married here in Israel. Okay. So you were single when you went over there, met your wife, and then it pursued this 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 totally different path than you were on. Is that is that pretty crazy to you in a way? You know, this world is so crazy to me. The fact that I'm able to move halfway around the world, live in Israel, open up a US-based business where people will come and buy products from me that I've never seen, selling it to people I've never met, who make purchases while I'm asleep halfway around the world. It is a totally shocking reality that we can live in this type of world. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you there. So let's dive into this in this book. What caused you to write this book? Why? Like, give us a little high overview of it. I know it's kind of written in a way. It reminds me of, of the book that our hundredth guest, David, who had a net worth of a hundred million. He wrote the book, uh, I guess, co-authored right with some other people, Jace, but Tribe of Millionaires. And that's kind of the one that reminds me of this in the sense that it's it's more of a fiction novel trying to teach principles. So I know that's a little bit what this is, but tell us about how this book got started. Does it kind of follow your story or, or what can people learn from this book? What are you trying to teach? So the book got started because I realized that despite having made a lot of money in my life, so many of the difficulties we found ourselves in financially were because we just didn't really didn't understand money as well as we needed to. And so like I said, when there's something I need to, to know, I love writing on it because if I'm just researching something to figure out for myself, I'm like, okay, maybe I need to learn this subject or I need to learn this subject. But if I'm writing about money to teach people about money, then I have to learn everything, whether it applies to me or not. And so I, I decided to dive in and start writing this novel. And this really became what got me getting an education. And I learned so much. I learned basically everything I could about money. And for the first time in my life, I was in my early 40s at the time, early to mid 40s, I was starting to understand money itself, not just how to make it, but what to do with it, how to invest it, how to save it, how to make it grow, how to protect it from taxes. There are so many different areas of money that I never knew in the past. And the book 
became it. It started as a buddy novel, actually, between these two guys, Kyle and Dylan. But as we went through one draft after the next, it became really clear that the person whose story was the most interesting was actually neither of them, was Dylan's girlfriend, Amber. And she went from being the third main character to being the main character. And the reason for that was that Dylan was this guy who went on kind of an alternative financial path, dropped out of college, started, made sure he wasn't building up any debt, any bad debt, I should say, started investing in properties, really thinking about financial independence, thinking about how can I generate passive income sources so that I don't have to work forever. And when he starts dating Amber, she's really struggling with this guy who's not going out to eat. He's not driving a car. He's not living like a normal life. And at first, she just thinks he's a bum. And it takes her a little while to dig in and understand that actually, no, he's thought very hard about money. And he's actually built a really solid financial foundation for himself. And she starts to struggle herself. She's saying, well, I can see actually this is a really good guy. He's the type of guy I could build a few, but his choices are so unorthodox. Can I make this choice? Can I go down this path with him or not? And so she asks him to basically teach her what he's learned about money so that she can decide if she can make a relationship with him work or not. And that's really the whole setting for this book is the two of them and their relationship. And to me, it just became so natural that this became a love story. Like it was really not planned at all. I've never read love stories. I didn't, didn't think I'd ever write a love story. But the fact is like money is one of the biggest triggers in relationships. It's one of the top causes of divorce. And some of the biggest struggles my wife and I went through in our lives were around money. So it became natural that actually relationship and love story became the context for exploring all of these different financial lessons. And literally the book teaches hundreds of them, all that I've been able to pick up over these past few years. So what Dave, again, it's called The Cash Machine by Dave Mason, and Dave's been nice enough to provide us a copy of the book. And so if you write in and say that you're interested in receiving the copy, we'll do a random drawing and send it to to one lucky listener. So we're appreciative for that, Dave. What are the things that ha- that stood out or what are the topics that maybe you said, hey, that's that's new to me or I realized how important that is once writing this book. Maybe what are the top two or three financial lessons that have stood out to you? So like we've all kind of heard the phrase, there's two things no one can escape, death and taxes. And you know, I'd heard that many, many times over my life. And by the time I got done researching, I was totally ready to chuck that in the garbage. And I still haven't figured out how to outwit death. But it is shocking to me, once I started digging into taxes, that like I now view them as pretty much optional. Based on, at least in the US, based on US tax law, the more I've gotten to understand about taxes, the more I realize that there are plenty of people who actually don't pay them at all, despite making tremendous amounts of money. Now that came up in the whole debate between Hillary and, and Trump, actually, when you know she accused him of paying no taxes and he jumps in and says, because I'm smart. Now, regardless of what you think for, about Trump, like it's pretty shocking that a billionaire could be saying, I literally pay no taxes because I know how to work the system. And that's part of what I uncovered. I'd say that was really lesson number, the most shocking lesson that was, was that one. But the biggest lesson for me was really the concept of having a financial goal. You know, to me, I never knew what I was earning money for other than covering my month by month expenses. I didn't know what I should be doing with it. I didn't have a financial goal. So I didn't really know how to set about accomplishing it. What I realized is this, this concept of financial independence, this idea of building up passive income sources. And that when my passive income sources exceed my cost of living, I'm financially independent. I, from that point on, would have no financial stress or much less financial stress because I know each month that money is coming in, whether I'm capable of working for it that month or I'm not. And so once I, st- I discovered that, it totally shifted the way we invest money, 
the way we earn money, the way we think about what our money objectives should be. And now we're very much saying, okay, we've, we're on this path, financial independence. That is our goal. And had we had that goal when I first started my business, we would have reached it very, very quickly. But because we didn't know anything about money at the time, we found ourselves in debt rather than financially independent because just from the stupidity of our choices. That's great. Yeah. So are, are you, where are you at now financially, as much as you're comfortable saying here, either net worth or are you financially independent? Does your passive income exceed your expenses? So it's kind of a yes and no question. And the reason I answer it that way is because it depends whether you look at my primary business as a passive income source or not. So if we include my passive, my primary business, which again, I devote roughly about a half hour a day to, then yes, I am financially independent. But if we take that off the shelf and we say, well, that's really your, your active income source, even though for tax purposes, it's definitely passive, but that is your primary business source. That's where you put your energy into working, even though it's very limited each day. If we don't count that, I'm not there yet and building towards it. Okay, great. And then I know before the show, we talked about being an accredited investor, which there's a kind of a couple of things income wise and net worth of a million. Are you, are you at that point yet? I know that with some of the business stuff on the side, it can be hard to, to have valuations. Right. That, that's what we were, we were talking about. So it's kind of a funny thing in that once I learned about financial independence, I started getting involved in private equity deals. To me, that's one of my favorite ways of making passive income because, you know, you can get involved in small businesses or real estate, but you don't have the burden of actually running them yourself. And what I found was a lot of these deals required me to be an, a, an accredited investor. And it was kind of a funny mix in that I was able to qualify for some and not qualify for others. And the reason why is when you have a business like mine, there's so many different ways of stipulating what the business is actually worth. And according to some tests, I was accredited, had a valuation of of a million dollars or more. And according to other tests, I was not. So the bigger the private equity company that I'm dealing with, the more likely they are to be using a third-party accrediting service, which will go and they will use very, very conservative valuations when saying what your business is worth. So according to those, I'm not a millionaire, I wasn't accredited. But there are other valuations of a business, and until a business is sold, it's anybody's guess you know, what that business would sell for. By other ways of valuing the business, I am accredited. So some of the smaller deals allowed me to self-certify that I was accredited. So, and I felt comfortable self-certifying because I know there are legitimate valuations, business valuation tests that according to those, I'm accredited. So I felt comfortable saying, yes, I can make an argument that I'm accredited because there are valuations that say I am. But the bigger companies, no way. They just take the right. most conservative valuation. Okay. So you're right there around a million bucks-ish. So how big are the, when does that start to change, Dave? It's kind of interesting because I think at least most of them that I've seen have been self-certified. Obviously, there's some in real estate, I think, that that uh, they're not self-certified. But was there a specific investment amount or investment type where maybe an investment in, in either real estate or a small business, was there a certain spot that they would not allow the self-certification anymore? No, it was more the the different companies, like the the bigger the company you're working with, the bigger the fund, the more likely they are to want to be using third-party certification in order to kind of cover their butts. You know, But a lot of the deals I've been dealing with have actually been very small, been a handful of guys, a handful of investors coming together to be purchasing a property together. 
And those, they, they almost always take self-certification. And in fact, for, for your listeners, it's important to know you can often get into small deals even if you can't self-certify, even if you can't make an argument at all that you're accredited, because each accredited investment deal has 35 slots for non-accredited investors. So when you're getting into a large fund like a hedge fund or whatever, forget about it. Those slots have long, long been gone. But if you're getting into a small property deal, as long as that deal is its own fund and is not thrown in with a much bigger fund, you'll very often be able to qualify for one of those, those 35 slots. Yeah. So are your investments mostly in real estate or small business? And, and how do you find them? So one thing I've been doing recently, actually, is actually a combination between the two. So for instance, I've been investing in nursing homes. One thing I like about nursing homes is they are both run like a business and depreciate like real estate. Because when you're buying the home, you're buying all of the real estate as part of the home. So it gets all the tax benefits of a real estate investment. At the same time, it is a business. And so it has the ability to earn income like a business. And most of your, I know you told us before the show, most of your investments are in the US, right? Yes. Gotcha. So let's talk uh, tax shelters if you want. It's kind of a unique uh, topic that we haven't talked about a lot on the show. What are what are maybe, if at all, some tips or advice you could give on that? What are some things that you learned? What are your takeaways from tax efficiencies? The most powerful formula that I have seen so far is the combination of accelerated depreciation and passive income. So let me stop for a moment and define those for any listeners who might not be familiar. So if you have, say, a home, so you buy, you buy a house for a million dollars. Now, real estate, despite the fact that it normally goes up in value, for tax purposes, you can actually claim that it's going down in value. You can claim that it's depreciating. And in the US, residential property depreciates over 27 and a half years. So you might think, okay, you take your million dollars and you divide that by 27 and a half, and each year you can claim that much depreciation. But it's actually not quite how it works for a few reasons. One, land doesn't depreciate. So if you buy a million dollar property, you might only get $800,000 in depreciation. And you could claim that amount of depreciation, 800,000 divided by 27.5, you could claim that every year for 27 and a half years. But there's something called accelerated depreciation, which allows you to, or segregated doing what's called a cost segregation, where you can say that, you know what? Yes, the house costs me a million dollars and 200,000 are land, but the other $800,000, it's really not all house. You know, some of it's house, but some of it is also furniture and lighting and cabinets and flooring. And if you break those things out, if you segregate them, those things depreciate over five years. So you could say that, again, the place costs a million, 200,000 is land, it doesn't count. 600,000 is the building, that depreciates in 27 and a half years. But you could maybe 200,000 of that is actually other things that depreciates in five years, which allows you to get almost $40,000 so those other things would be $40,000 a year of depreciation. And your total amount of depreciation for those first five years goes through the roof. Now, depreciation can't knock out all sources of income. But if you have passively earned income, it can. So that's why I love that magic formula. So if you're able to buy a property, accelerate its depreciation, it could actually wipe out a huge amount of income on the flip side if you earn it passively. Yeah, totally. That's so Dave, you, you've got this great business, you've got the lifestyle you want. Where do you kind of go from here? To me, it is just book by book by book. 
it's not, I'm, like I said, I'm just a personal growth junkie. I love learning new areas and I love writing about them. And so for me, it's just been so fascinated to be learning about these lessons about money. And my goal is to actually help 10,000 people by January 1st improve their, their financial standing through the cash machine. So the, I don't mean 10,000 downloads of the cash machine. I don't mean 10,000 people who read the cash machine. I mean 10,000 people who read the cash machine and implement at least one of the strategies and see a difference in their net worth by January 1st as a result. So that is my short-term goal for this book. And my long-term goal is to keep finding areas that I personally need to grow in and writing engaging novels around those to help expose this knowledge to the world. What would you say are some of the most important lessons or most valuable lessons in the cash machine? Definitely the idea of having that financial goal. Like I said, that was a huge thing for me. Another one is just really start to understand your expenses. You know, people talk about things like the latte factor, like maybe I'll cut down on this coffee. I'm getting it from Starbucks and I'll make it at home instead and I can save all this money. But I really like to take it and flip things upside down and say, why are you starting with the three, four dollar a day expense? Really start with your top expenses. Start from the top. Most people have the same top expenses, housing, taxes, transportation, food. If you go and you look at all of those things, we go through strategies on how to make huge financial gains in each of them. And to me, one of the top lessons of this whole book is to say that you just need to get yourself an education. You need to not just follow the crowd and do what they're doing financially, but you need to figure out what are your goals and how can you get to them? You know, there's a line in the, the book where one of the characters says that if you spend a thousand hours over the course of your life learning about money, you can eliminate 80,000 hours of trying to earn it. And I think so many people just find themselves in these ruts. They get themselves in a ton of debt before they even learn how much debt is going to cost them or how they, how they're going to pay it back. They spend money the way their friends are spending money. They have very little cash left over. And like we see these days with Corona, with so many people out of work, that people have very little savings. They have very little emergency funds. They don't know what to do if they're missing even one paycheck, let alone potentially several months worth of paychecks. So it's really to stop and take a step back and look at your finances as a whole and saying, okay, what do I want for my money and how can I really get myself there? And what are the lessons I need to learn to get me there, to get, let me take that next step. So just to give maybe some insights to our, to our listeners who aren't familiar with, with the part of the world that you live in, how do people deal with money where you're at there in Israel? And are there similarities or complete differences to the way that people in the United States deal with money? Interesting. Certainly, I feel like in my community, at least, that people tend to live a lot simpler. Like, for instance, I live in downtown Jerusalem, don't have a car, don't want one. The times I've had a car, it's been a huge headache and an expense, and it didn't help me get around very much. Not really many places I need to go. Don't go out to eat all of that much. There's just, it's not kind of that nightlife, a lot of entertainment type lifestyle. People tend to live very quiet lives, focus more on, on their families, on spiritual growth, on where they are as, as a person. It's, I don't tend to see the, the same type of living that I see when I go visit the States, usually once every once or twice a year. It just tends to be quieter with money. Now, I don't know if you could say the same thing in the Tel Aviv area and kind of the high-tech sectors. I imagine you'd see spending that it looks fairly similar to, to America. But here in Jerusalem, it's definitely a quieter, mellower, less materialistic 
type thing. You know, in our neighborhood, we have a real range from people who are very much struggling financially, make very little, to people who are doing incredibly well. And you don't see like where I grew up, oh, this is a wealthy neighborhood, this is a poor neighborhood. Again, maybe in some parts of the country, but it's much more this neighborhood is for people who like to think in this way. This neighborhood is for people who like to think in this way. This is what they're relating to. This is what they want out of life. So it's a very different type of scenario. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation because you have all realms of it. And what you're saying about about buying less, being less materialistic, I, I watched recently a, a little documentary, 45 minutes or an hour long on Netflix, Netflix called The Minimalists. And it was all about that. It was about two guys that kind of tried to climb the corporate ladder and then decided, look, we've just been accumulating stuff. Right. And like, it, it's not, I, I kind of kept thinking if the more I accumulated, the more I got, it would make me more happy. Right. And so then I, the guy says, I went into debt. I started buying more and more. And then I soon realized buying stuff wasn't going to make me happy. So just a, a, an interesting show and an interesting take from you. I want to just jump back, Dave, to your comments about passive income, right? We talked about that's a, a big lesson of the book, The Cash Machine, a big lesson that you've learned for your financial journey. How does somebody that doesn't have any passive income right now, right? They work a W-2 job, they enjoy their job or they don't or whatever. They're, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, doesn't really matter how old. And they say, okay, I'm hearing about passive income. I know that's kind of the key out or, or it's nice to have passive income on the side. Where do they start? Because there's so many things you could do, right? You could do small business, you could do real estate, you could do a side hustle of trying to start your own little business. What would be your advice to somebody to get started in passive income? So like I said, I love it when people start at the top. So the most expensive thing for most people is their housing. And it's very possible to turn your housing into a source of passive income as well. So what do I mean by that? There's a concept, I don't know if anyone's talked about it on your show yet, called the house hack. Do you guys, are you guys familiar with this? Have you had any guests about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that. Okay, cool. So, but that's one strategy I happen to love. The house hack is you can buy a primary residence of up to four different units of four different apartments, and it all is considered to be a primary residence. According to U.S. law, you can put it all under a primary residence mortgage, which is going to have better terms than a commercial mortgage. And so if you're able to be getting a place that allows you to be renting out some units, you know, if you buy a place with even a duplex and you're able to live in one and rent out one or a triplex or a quadruplex, you can bring your housing costs incredibly far down while bringing in a, pa a passive income source at the same time. So that's one of my absolute favorites because it's not just generating passive income, it's simultaneously reducing your housing costs. And when you want to hit financial independence, there's those two are always in play. The higher your cost of living, the more passive income you need to generate. So if somebody's really struggling to find a passive income source, they might want to start looking at, actually, they can take a bigger step towards financial independence by doing something that will reduce their cost of living. That will get them, get them there even faster, potentially. But if you can do the two at the same time, then that's even, that's even better. So buying a multi-unit home, if you can afford to do so, especially these days, interest rates are super low. You can get FHA loans for mortgages for up as little as 3.5% down if it's a primary residence. So it doesn't take a tremendous amount of money to get yourself into a, a multi-unit property. And that's the, I think the easiest passive income source to start with. 
Yeah, and I'd add that it doesn't even necessarily have to be multi-unit, right? There's some people that just rent out their basements or something, or or I guess it is multi-unit, right? You create it as a multi-unit or, or even rooms if you're single, right? We've had people on the show that that are in college or, or living in San Francisco or another high-cost of living area, and they just rent out bedrooms, right? And so it, it's pretty interesting. Just funny story, actually, I had a, a friend call the other day and said, gosh, man, you've made my life so miserable. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I was listening to one of your, your podcast episodes and you had somebody on and they kind of talked about house hacking and how one of the things they did early with house hacking is they did all of the repairs and the home improvements themselves, right? So instead of hiring it out, they'd go, they'd go work on it and do all the work at night themselves to save the money. And so they were doing some basement work and he's like, I've been spending every night from 7 p.m. to midnight the last three weeks working on my basement and it's been so miserable. But, you know, now, now I look back at it and it's done and I'm happy it's done and I was able to save some money. So kind of interesting, right? Exactly what you're saying. I, I think people can do and, and some people want to do it. Some people do it. Anyway, it's just a, a funny story that came to mind. Shout out to Ian. So, Dave, just in summary here. Tell us where people can find you. Where can they find this book? Uh, maybe what's your kind of your last selling point um, or mistakes or general advice? What would you go with? So definitely people can find my book on Amazon. It's The Cash Machine. And you can also find my website at buildmycashmachine.com. But if I was to leave people with a with a parting parting note, it's you know, we spend so much time trying to figure out how to earn money. Typical person will work at least 40 hours a week. We'll spend years in education, in school, and we learn everything to help us get to the point of earning more money. But we almost never take the time to learn about money itself, how to spend it, how to invest it, how to earn it, how to make it grow. And so that's really my parting shot is that whether it's through the cash machine or one of the other innumerable websites or books out there that I really encourage people to take ownership over their financial journey and make sure you learn about money. And it can just save you so much stress. It can save relationship stress. It can save the stress of earning money. It can save the stress of being in a job you don't like. It can save the stress of when there's a downturn in the economy and you're not afraid of getting downsized or put on temporary leave as many people are now because they don't have enough. Own your journey and learn what you need to know. Yeah, really good advice. Really like it. Just in, it, one more question here that just kind of came to mind. Um, and I think it's unique to you. And we asked this about a, a lot of our listeners kind of cost of living. If you're comfortable saying how much does it cost you or a family? I don't know if you have kids to live in Jerusalem. What just kind of paint a picture for somebody. What is rent or maybe you, you own your place. I don't know, but what, what are your expenses a year? My rent right now is about $2,000 a month. One of our largest expenses is food because we are so anal about our food where we, we're vegans. We eat all organic. We get all of our food, most of our food delivered directly from the farm. So we, we spend a lot more on vegetables than just about anybody I know. So that's, uh, that's probably $1,500 a month there that just goes into, into produce, into eating. So we're, we have a fairly low rent cost and fairly high food cost. Our costs for sending our, our son to school are incredibly low. One of the things I say about Israel is that, you know, it's a socialized country. So I like to say that a quick rule of thumb with Israel is, is something a necessity or is it a luxury? If it's a necessity, it will be provided for at an incredibly high quality at a very low cost. So not organic food like ours, but basic food staples are very cheap. Healthcare is very good and very cheap. Education is good and very cheap. But if it's a luxury, like if it's a car, 
a TV, computer, something that they think that people can get on without, they will tax those at like 100% and use the taxes there to pay for everybody else's necessities. So if you want to own a car, it's going to cost you double what it will cost in the States and other such luxuries is the same. So it's really a place where you can live fairly inexpensively. But if you want to have an American type lifestyle and live in Israel, it's going to cost you a fortune. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 2000 rent was on the cheap side. How many bedrooms is that? What does 2000 get you? We're in a three bedroom place. Three bed, And that's on the low end? No, it's a, I'd say fairly mid market at, at this point. Uh, it's definitely not on the low end. Now people can get away with as little as $1,300 in rent for a couple bedroom place. Okay, cool. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. I think it's just insightful to somebody who's maybe not familiar with it. So Dave, thanks again for coming on the show. Net worth around a million bucks, author of The Cash Machine, A Tale of Passion, Persistence, and Financial Independence. Um, and he's been kind enough again to send a copy to us for one of our readers. So if you write into us, we'll enter your name into a drawing and send out a copy of his book to, to one of you, our, our listeners. So Dave, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.